1: BritFlix.com podcast. It's the BritFlix.com podcast. Welcome to the BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me Neil Thompson. Hello, Neil. Hello. And you're from Formosa Films. I I am indeed. Having just learned how to say that. Um, and we're going to talk ostensibly about um, the idea of using SEIS and EIS, which are enterprise investment schemes. To, yes. uh, in, in particular, talk, uh, one thing we talked about before we did the before we did the podcast was the idea of using it for development and that idea of script development and stuff. Yeah. Um, with film projects, so be very interested yes. to hear about that. Um. But before we do that, let's let's just give the listener a bit of background on yourself first, I suppose. Um, so you you started out sort of your journey into film, as it were, via um, pop music videos, and I noticed on IMDb as well, you you sort of was involved with producing the word as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I kind of um, started off in the music business really. I was like in bands and stuff, and had a. PA company. So me and my um, brother and, and and my sort of best mate, we had a company hiring equipment out to like the marquee and dingwalls and universities and stuff to bands, mainly okay. mainly punk bands, skinhead bands and that, and bands that no one else would touch with a barge pole. Um, and um, through that, we kind of. Um, we had a kind of mod band called Small we signed We signed to Warners. You know, we, we were kind of okay. We, we we used to sort of do really well live and had quite a big following and that. But um, um, And we had a couple of tracks on, like, the mods Mayday compilation. But when we signed our record deal eventually, we didn't really set the world on fire. We had a few... I think we had an EP came out and a couple of other things, but it um, kind of sort of fizzled away. And then... Um, When uh, when we kind of had a couple more bands and things like that, a friend of mine who uh, ran a club in Soho in London, he wanted a kind of resident band to play um, once or twice a week, but he wanted it to be kind of weird, because this was at the time when everyone was going weird. Okay. And, okay. and, and uh, he kind of had, you know, he, his club was always packed out, and it was kind of, I suppose it was like, it wasn't neuromantic, but it was along those lines. So it's kind of weirdos and everyone was on drugs and shit like that. And so we started this kind of act called revolting to star. We used to include films in that. And we'd kind of wrap cake recipes into all sorts of mad shit and put in <laughs> pots and pans all mics up and to sort of electronic backing tracks. So it was kind of craft work meets kind of performance art or something like that. I don't know. I don't know what we were doing, obviously on dodgy drugs at the time. And, um, That that's what got me interested in filmmaking, really, to be honest with you. I mean, I'd always been quite a keen photographer and used to take kind of arty black and white photos on the quiet without telling anyone. And um, uh, I really got into the kind of whole video scene as it was around then, making cut-up stuff and montages and things like that. And then I sort of progressed from that into kind of making little experimental short films and stuff like that. And that's when I sort of thought... um, I'd like to learn to do this properly, because I started to feel slightly frustrated that I kind of, um, you know, didn't know how to do it. I mean, there's obviously you can read books and stuff like that, but I wanted to kind of yeah. go somewhere where you'd learn to do it, so I went to film school, is the long and short of it. And at film school, because I had all my music biz contacts, I kind of uh, made a couple of music videos, one for London Records, which was part of a, a, a sort of thing we were doing for Channel 4, actually, at the time. Um, And um, we kind of got commissioned to to make this pilot. It it didn't happen in the end. It didn't go to series, but they gave us some money, and London Records were were sort of involved. And um, we made uh, a couple of our own music videos, which went inside this pilot, which was about the music industry, really. So it was about sort of politics and pop. and then we did one which was about sex and pop so we did kind of two eps of this thing which was going to be this channel for a series about kind of popular culture and where it's at now man and um so when i graduated uh the record company london actually gave me actually commissioned me to make a video for an artist called steve so who's like a big house star and this Jack your body yeah it's like a massive tune and, and the artist was meant to come over and he missed his plane or something like that and didn't arrive so they said to me look can you put something together really fast that we can put on top of the pops and everything so um, that was my video so <clears throat> and it Kind of went to number one for about eight weeks or something. So, so also then, all, that,
1: all that cut and paste stuff you were talking about earlier, that obviously yeah. came, came into the. I mean, obviously, you did the film study stuff, but I, I remember the uh Steve Slick early video that was a load of uh, sort of black and white cartoons and old black and white, of white
0: dance footage. Yeah, I, yeah, I found this guy that um owned he's an actor actually, yeah. um, sort of very um kind of out there dude. But he, he'd managed to sort of buy up all of this dance footage from, from the US, from like the 30s that used to go in these kind of film jukeboxes. And he had tons and tons and tons of it. It was amazing stuff. So I kind of did a deal with him and, um, licensed a load of it off him. And, and that was the basis for Jackie Body. And then I also did another video called Roadblock for Stockick and Waterman, which had all these car crashes in it. And that, and that was his for too. He had tons of amazing stuff. And I did a couple of other videos. I remember doing one for Arthur Baker, the producer. I can't remember the artist there. Some trendy R&B artist out in New York. And and we used all this amazing animation that he had, which was kind of... It's not Disney animation, but on drugs. So it was basically, you'd have this band of crows who were like a jazz band. Yeah, yeah. And they were all, like, smoking spliff and stuff. It was amazing. And all this shit was done in, like, the 1920s, 30s. It's it's like kind of, I suppose, like the sort of stuff that would go on to be Fritz the Cat or whatever. But it was obviously done by these old dudes who were working for the animation studios back there. And I suppose in their spare time, they probably did X-rated stuff, you know? No,
1: no. And obviously this is... What we're talking here, the sort of are we talking early 90s here? Is that the sort of time? Yeah, yeah, so,
0: early 90s. That was when I was in my kind of prime yeah.
1: So, um, in that, in then, and, and, and it still applies now, I guess. I mean, you said yourself you, you went there because you were kind of frustrated by what you felt were your own limitations of yeah. trying to learn as you went.
0: So, yeah, just as I and I wanted it, to get my hands on proper film cameras and all that, you
1: okay. Know. Okay, so that was that was that the kind of main main push forward for you was to get your... Yeah, own. yeah, I
0: wanted to work on, like, well, mainly 16mm, I was obsessed with 16mm, you know, um, and then eventually I got my hands on 35mm and realised that's even better. Mm. But for a while, we made quite a lot of stuff on 16mm. On In fact, I used to shoot a lot of music videos on 16mm and Super 8, I really liked the look of it, and then I would transfer the film straight to digital and then play around with it afterwards. But I really liked the the sort of look you could get by capturing quite old... I used to use deliberately really old film stocks and stuff like that because I used used to love the kind of look you'd get from it. In fact, I used to use an old telecity machine at one of the post houses in London Hmm. because they had this old thing stuck up the end of a corridor that they'd sort of decommissioned. And um, I said to the guy one day, what's that? And he said, oh, that's really old. You know, it's like 20 years old. I said, does it work? And he said, I think so, yeah. So we kind of booted it up and started messing around with it. And it was great. You used to get these amazing kind of colours out of it. So I started actually using that too. So, So a lot of our kind of early music video stuff was, again, quite experimental in that we were not experimental in the content necessarily because you know, record companies wouldn't let you kind of do anything, but we we really used to kind of mess around and experiment with kind of film stocks and and TK techniques and all the and editing techniques and all these kind of things. I actually set fire at the edit suite at Carlton once doing a an acid video. <laughs> there's about six of us all pressing different buttons and pulling levers and that. and we overloaded the thing hot so much it went on fire.
1: <laughs> Gee, <Grace. laughs> So, what was, what was the, I mean, was it, I guess it was an evolutionary process that took you, took, and you were obviously learning all the time while you're making these music videos. Yeah. But, but the, yeah, the, the I kind of went
0: to film school really. Yeah. So, film school was where I learned formally how to make stuff. Hmm. And, and, and at film school, I did a lot of, like, I DOP'd on a lot of films, I edited loads of films, I was a production designer on a couple of films. So, I kind of, you know, wanted to H O D on every department as much as I can to learn. Hmm. And then the music video scene at that time was our was gave us the opportunity to kind of experiment, you know, and that that was really the film school. That was where we learned some some crazy stuff, you know.
1: I can imagine, I can
0: imagine. Yeah, yeah, it was good. And then the music industry changed very quickly while I was doing it actually it kinda because originally when I started record companies all had um, departments called art departments, and the art department would be responsible for, (laughs) you know, design and record sleeves (coughs) and also music videos. And then after about three or four years of us doing that, there was a kind of recession around then, and a lot of record companies kind of fired loads of people and, and slimmed down. And then, and that's when the art started to outsource a lot of that work, and um, the marketing department took over music video. So all these like guys from St. Martins and art schools and that, who were commissioning videos back in the day, which is why you got all this crazy shit by Peter Gabriel and that, mm. that disappeared overnight. And now marketing guys were in charge, and they're idiots. They just want <laughs> like crap, you know. They just want the artists to look good. They're not interested. In- in kind of ideas or anything like that, which is why videos got shit quite quickly, but have remained so ever since.
1: I see your point. I can see your point. <laughs> well, I mean, I, mean I, I, we've talked about this before. I mean, I, I, worked, I worked as a band manager sort of mid noughties And by that time, I didn't see the logic of anybody wanting to make a music video. I mean, no. from the production side, you were... You were exactly. being, it got you were, very
0: corporate and bland and boring. You, know? you were
1: basically offering five grand. To, I mean, it's, we were on Island Records and it was sort of here's £5,000 band. Going, yeah. And here's a production company that's just going to get a load of free people to volunteer. Yeah.
0: And yeah, yeah came. that's what it became. It's a bit sad. That's what happened to it, really. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. In the heyday when we were doing it, you know, uh, well, I mean, I remember, um, I mean, not me personally, but I remember directors back in the day, you know, getting like seven million dollars to make one music video. I remember the Fuji's made a music video which at that time was the most expensive ever. And of course you had Michael Jackson and Madonna and that and, and, and all the, those kind of artists pushing pushing it too in their own way. You know, and they quite often those sort of artists because they had incredible power would work with interesting people, you know. Mm. And even under those constrictions, you know, when you're working with a superstar, I think some of the work that was made around them was quite interesting, you know.
1: Well, it's, 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 when you say it like that, it's, it, you can see the parallel between those superstars and their video releases and what we have now with this yeah. idea of releasing a trailer for a film. It's, <laughs> You know, they've, yeah. they've become events now, haven't they? The, uh, yeah, yeah. So I don't think releasing videos, a music video, is an event anymore.
0: No, and also at that time... In, in not definitely in music videos and later on in commercials because technology was chasing so fast music videos was the place where you could try things out I remember Godly and Cream were the first people to use like morphing you know all these new software that came out and these new techniques that were available to you music video was always the place where you'd see people experimenting with that you know and then it would become mainstream you know like the the kind of 360-degree um, pan that you get in The Matrix and that. You know, people yeah. were doing yeah. that in music videos years before the Wyshowskis uh, <laughs> claimed they defended it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. uh, so
1: you, you've got, um, is, is, is it two feature films that you've directed? Is that right? Uh,
0: two, two, really, that we did EIS, yeah. Okay, and, two and feature the... films, Clubbed in 28k that we did yeah. through Formosa. and they were both using that model of raising money on EIS and then adding industry money to it.
1: Now, before going to, I just want, I can see that on certainly on, on a couple of them, you, you you've got a key collaborator, which is David Q. Yeah. Is it, I mean, and it looks like on the credits, it shows that you both write and you both direct. So, yeah. on it. How does that work? That the, 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 the uh, Do you share them literally, or does one of you do more of them Well, your... me and David
0: have worked together on and off for about 20-odd years, to be honest with you. Okay. Uh, so, he used to be my editor when I did music videos. Not on all of them, but we used to like working together and... Uh, more often than not we'd try and work together on music videos and then we did some concerts together, we did some short films together. So um, we've kind of worked together on and off a lot. And then um, um, the writing thing um, is more recent really and that we've also started writing together. Um, But, you know, David was an editor predominantly and then he went to the National Film School as a director. Hmm. Then he directed in TV and stuff like that, and he makes he makes a lot of documentaries now. Actually, yeah. I mean, he did do TV drama, but he never really kind of got on with that. I would say you know it wasn't didn't really suit him, and maybe he didn't suit it. So um, so we've always sort of um, collaborated on on uh, feature ideas usually, and when an opportunity come along to make a feature, you know, we usually gravitate towards each other and kind of swap script ideas and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah I No, mean, it works quite well
1: no i'm sure it does I'm sure it does if you've been able if, you, if you've been able to do it for 20 or 20 years or so then clearly it's working on on lots yeah. of
0: levels yeah i mean we know each other really well now and kind of trust each other's judgment and and all that so it's quite nice to have someone to ban stuff off because it can be a lonely life being a director you know
1: I can imagine when the worlds all looking at you, going, well, "What, what yeah. we're going we to do then?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind um, of interesting, you know. What kind
0: of side going? What... Why are you spending all this money? <laughs>
1: <laughs> and what, kind, what kind of director are you? You know, when you sit down with your, let's start with the with the, with, <coughs> the um, with the actors. How do you approach your actors when you're directing them? Are you are you wanting to hear what they want to do? Are you looking to yeah, I mean, what
0: they do? yeah? I mean, directing's not rocket science, really. It's kind of, I mean. You know the good directors I think that I've that I like tend to sort of collaborate very well. You know, I mean the trick is to work with really really good people if you can. Yeah, you don't yeah. always have the choice or the money or the capability to do that, to be honest with you. But you know if you possibly can. Like, I mean, it, it, at our height, I suppose you could call it of the whole music video thing, and for a while in commercials as well, we had like a really good tight knit team that worked together and that's where we made all our best work really because we had a kind of shorthand and we were all kind of used to each other and shared the same tastes and stuff like that so uh, and that makes it much easier you know unfortunately on feature films it's quite hard to do that because you're not making them every three months or whatever so um you know you tend to kind of all come together to make a film and then you all disappear off into your own lives again and quite often you never see those people again ever or you know you might try and work with them again six months, a year, two years later when you're doing another project or something, but you can't get them because they're busy. So it's it's difficult, but it's, it's um, you know, it, it, it is all about people. It really is, you know, and, and, and sort of sharing the same tastes and, and, and then directing for me is really allowing people to do what they do well. You know, it's like creating the space for them to do what they do well and that's the same for hod's as it is for actors as it is for runners really it's like um you know once you're kind of all um you know marching to the same tune sort of thing then it's just a case of steering it really you know um i mean i don't think you know i don't think it's good for directors to sort of be too dictatorial really to be honest with you and to interfere too much the thing is to create a kind of atmosphere where people want to do their best work, you know, and then, then it all comes together really, I think.
1: I guess. So, yeah, because if I think about, say, say your leading man or woman, if you pick the wrong one, then you're going to be forever just trying to push something uphill. Whereas if you cast the right person, then it should just, it should almost just be a kind of right. Yeah. The scene.
0: (laughs) Yeah, totally. I mean, casting, casting is, is so important. It really is. I mean, you're right in that when you get that right and it kind of works, it's amazing. It just kind of flows. And when you've got it wrong and there's a problem, you you, you do have a, a, a serious problem. And that's something you probably spend the rest of the film and the post trying to kind of get around and fix. But it's the same with crew. You have to cast the right crew, really, as well, you know, because they need to work together. In a, in a, in a, in a, you know, in a, I mean, it really is teamwork. You know, I can't stress that enough. And if you've got someone in the team who's, who's, you know, not pulling their weight or is is kind of messing everything up, that's a major problem. You know, and that goes for actors and crew, to be honest with you. Yeah,
1: I mean, for those for those listening who haven't experienced sort of being being on a, on a film set, whether that be a short film or a feature film. Production of, of music video, whatever it is, a, it is a really intense experience, isn't it? The yeah, the, the sort of early starts, the late finishes, the early start, the late finish, you know, yeah. that gets a bit relentless, doesn't it? So, you need it, does,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to sort of pace yourself and you have to, um, you know, almost kind of choose your moments when you know you're going to expend sort of most of your energy. And then other times when you can kind of, um, you know, relax a little bit more. Um, That's why I like shooting in the studio a lot, because shooting in the studio, you have a lot more control, and obviously, you know, you're not subject to the weather and all sorts of uh, sound crashes and traffic and all these other sort of things, so it's a much kind of more controlled environment to work in, and I, I, I like that, whereas... Locations. There's so many things that can go wrong and that you don't have control over that you spend most of the time kind of stressed out. Really, you know. Yeah, hoping,
1: <laughs> hoping for that happy accident where everything's perfect outside. Yeah, well,
0: hoping for nice weather usually. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You're shooting in Britain now. Look, hopefully that that gives people this this introductory conversation just gives people an idea that obviously you bring you 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 have a wealth of experience spanning a couple of decades really I suppose it's safe to say yeah yeah Um, I mean
0: I've I've probably done about um um 160 music videos or something like that and probably just
1: 160 is that only
0: 60 (laughs) commercials or something like that yeah so I've got quite and then I've done loads of concert films and documentaries and I've also done tv so yeah I mean I've got quite a kind of Lengthy CV as a director, I suppose. Yes, yeah, true.
1: So, so bringing bringing all that now into your kind of film production world and yeah. the, film directing world, you the, the 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 idea we were talking about was how you're you've been using the um, the EIS scheme, which is yes. Enterprise Investment Scheme, as yeah. a way of developing films. Yes, I mean, obviously, there's the people. I mean, the this is a um, I mean, the enterprise investment scheme is for any kind of high risk kind of business, isn't it? To uh, yeah. help help investors feel more comfortable that they're not yeah. taking all the risk with the money they're putting into a project. Is that would that be a way a good way to describe the scheme? That you yeah, mean? yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, the IS has been around for a long time now, and its yeah. forerunner, the BES. Um, you know, a lot of films like. Um, 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 staggered, um, soft top, hard shoulder, shooting fish. I mean, a lot of the films from the 90s and stuff were made using a thing called the BES, mm. um, which was a forerunner. It was the same kind of thing. And then it became the EIS. um not sure exactly when, but it's, I mean, it's been around for a good 15, 20 years. So um, and it stands for Enterprise Investment Scheme. And basically, it's for any company who wants to... Allow investors to buy shares in their company, and if they buy shares in a valid EIS company, which you have to get signed off by HMRC, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, they're then entitled to tax breaks. Now, the EIS you can raise well. When we started doing it, you could raise about one and a half million. That was about the cap. I think it was two million euros, something like that. So, um, which we did our first, that's how we did our first two films, so Clubbed and Twenty Eight K. Yeah. Both, we both, were both EIS films. It's, so we raised most of the budget on the EIS and then got industry money. So, you know, like in the West Midlands put money into Clubbed, etc. cetera. Um, 28K was nearly all EIS in the end. We were going to do a deal with the Isle of Man and um, a couple of other um, distributors and organisations, but that didn't happen for one reason or another. So, again, that was mainly EIS money. And then, of course, you get the UK film tax credit. So, by piecing together these various things, you, you can kind of scrape together the budget of your film. Now they've increased it. So, on the EIS, I think you can raise up to 5 million, I think it is. blank um, Which is significantly more. And, of, and, and the other thing, there have been certain companies who have raised, like, say, 2 million on the EIS and have used that just for development. So instead of making films with it, they've developed like a really big slate of films with it. Okay. Um, And that's always happened. And then when the SES came out, which stands for SEED Enterprise Investment Scheme, Mm -hmm. and under that you can only raise up to 150K and get tax relief for your investors. So um, basically it's not really enough to make a film unless it's a micro-micro-budget film. So the way we use that is for development. So we raise money on that and develop three or four projects and the investors get their money back when it becomes a sort of greenlit project, when it gets bought or co-produced or, or made.
1: So they, they, they... I mean, I suppose people are not picturing who these investors are. are. Are you, A, finding people to invest in movies or are you, B, going to people looking to invest in movies already and saying, why not invest in my project?
0: Yeah. I mean, when we started out, we didn't know anyone. I mean, literally no one. So we just had to start from ground zero, start from scratch. And um, it was a nightmare. I mean, it was really painful. You know, I mean, it kind of... You know, lots of people say they're interested. and You think, oh, great, all these people are interested. It's going to be great. And then when you go to them to get the money, they go, oh, well, actually, I left my wallet at home type thing. So it actually becomes a bit of a skill in itself and it's just something we had to learn and then the problem is when you think you've kind of learned it, the climate changes because the government changes the tax laws or EEC changes the financial regulations or whatever it is. So you have to kind of constantly stay on top of it and also people change. So someone that we'd be interested in investing Three or four years ago, might not be interested in investing now. You know, I mean, it's constantly um, different people who seem to be interested in investing in primarily film. I'm talking about, I mean, because okay. the EIS, the SEIS, you can use it for any business whatsoever, as long as it's not financing and oil, and there's a couple of other things you can't do. But apart from that, you can use it for anything. So, yeah, so the if I, so if I started a Tech and catering and
1: yeah. things like that, you know. If I was to start an app, an app. Making company tomorrow, I could yeah. go out and find investors to help fund that, couldn't
0: I? Definitely, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's the most popular thing is tech. That's what most of the investors are looking for.
1: I mean, just as a basic, basic idea on the maths and how it is appealing to investors. If you were to go for to get a hundred thousand pound from a investor, yeah, for a one million pound movie, so you're getting let yeah. Let's just keep it simple. So, ten people, hundred thousand yeah. pound each. Yeah. What are they risking? If it all goes
0: well? Well, the EIS well. is a lot riskier. So um, under the EIS, they get 30% income tax relief. Okay. So it's only actually any good for people who pay tax. So it's no good for drug dealers and prostitutes. Um, <laughs> so you have to be a kind of UK taxpayer right. uh, for, for, to get the benefit of it. And also you get... Um, a kind of deferral of cgt which is capital gains tax so if you're a sophisticated investor and you've got like a portfolio of shares and you make money out of that mm-hmm. or you're a property magnet and you have a load of buy to let property and you buy and sell a lot of property and you make money out of that or antiques or wine or whatever it is you're subject to tax for that and under the eis they give you a shelter for it so you, you get money off your income tax bill 30 percent in the case of the eis 50% in case of the SEIS, so that's a lot more attractive. Mm. So basically half of your investment is um, written, up, written off your tax bill by the government, which is quite nice. Indeed. Um, and with the SEIS, they also write off half your CGT. So instead of it just being deferred and sheltered, um, and you know, it basically comes back a few years in the future, under the SEIS, half of it's written off forever, so you actually get rid of it. So that's a kind of extra incentive. And you also get loss relief. So if for some reason we, um, you know, fall over and die or run off to Rio with all the money or the film doesn't get made for one reason or another and, and the company has to get liquidated, then um, the investors can also write off their loss against tax too. Wow. So it's, it's quite quite attractive. I mean, the SIS is very attractive in that If you're the right kind of investor and you've got all these tax liabilities, your exposure is probably about 15p max in the pound. Under the EIS, if you're an investor and you've got all these tax liabilities, your exposure is more like about 30%.
1: If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. So, so if, if my let's let's say if my tax bill, like like it ever would be, was two hundred thousand pounds next year. Yeah. And I said, Yeah, hey, Neil, here's a hundred thousand pounds to put into a movie."
0: Yeah. That's
1: that's a hundred thousand pounds off my tax bill, isn't it? So therefore, well, f-
0: fifty thousand if you put it into an SEIS. Okay. Although you can't put a hundred grand into an SEIS because the maximum you can put in is 45 because okay. of the company rules. Because so, you can't own more than 30% of a company. Okay. But so,
1: if I, uh, if I was buying, I don't know, 10% of of an, SE, of an EIS scheme, so if I put £100,000 into one... If you
0: put 100000 if you put 90000 into an EIS scheme, you get 30000 back from the tax man straight away.
1: Do you really?
0: Yeah. And then of the of the other sixty thousand you're exposed for, yeah. you can get mm-hmm. loss relief on that if it all goes tits up, and you can also defer your CGT, which at the moment is twenty eight percent too. So yeah, so I mean, for certain kinds of investors, it's a huge advantage to do it under EIS, and a, and a really massive advantage to do it under S E I S.
1: And is it, it, I mean, is it, if you make a profit from it, is that classed as a capital gain or is that
0: a... Well, the good thing about EIS and SEIS is if you make a profit from it, so if our film does well, you make money, or under the development scheme, if all of our films go to green lit and they get all their money back, then the profits are tax free as well. That's an, an extra incentive that the government give you.
1: Now, one of the things I've heard before, when people have spoke about this at film events, is and they and they seem to make a joke about it sometimes. Is it's almost like you go into investors and saying you're probably going to lose money, but it's not as much as if you know it's not as much as if you tried to spend that somewhere else. Yeah, kind of thing. I mean, yeah. how's that proposition? <laughs> an attractive thing for people to want to invest in film from your how, what is it people are wanting to be part of is it is it well, just be really,
0: that... that's the problem with film is over the last few years because of all these stories in the press about Ingenious and all these other companies sort of mis-selling some of the schemes and mm. some of the you know that you keep reading all these sort of footballers have to pay their money back etc yeah they were completely different schemes they were nothing to do with EIS but unfortunately, you get tired with that brush. So the investment community as a whole tends to be quite shy of investing in a film at all, really, now. Okay. Um, so it increasingly gets harder. I mean, when we started off doing it, it was about 2006 or something, when we started doing it properly. Um, so before... And then it was it was hard, but there were a lot of people willing to do it then. Then when the crash happened... No one wanted to do it for a couple of years. You couldn't find anyone willing to invest, and then about two thousand and ten, I would say, it started to kind of creep back, um, and then it's kind of more or less been the same since then. So it's never really got to back, got back to pre-crash level of interest for two reasons. Obviously because of the crash, and also because of the sort of toxic. Way that the reputation film has as an investment, um, but there are some very clever people out there now who are doing quite well and have um, have kind of quite well run film investment companies that that um, continually make money and make quite healthy profits. So it's starting to come back, but it, it's it, it's always been hard. But now it really is hard. So yeah, I mean you're right in that you know going to people saying would you like to do this? They're never going to do it in a film because it's too high risk. Mm -hmm. So the people that do invest in our films and invest with us tend to be interested in our projects or interested in us. So, you know, they know they're taking a punt and they know they're quite likely to lose it, but they're willing to do it because they're interested in, in kind of what's going to happen with this film and watching it, you know, become a script and become a film and get out there to... To an audience, so they're just interested in the in the in the whole kind of um, um, sort of culture of the UK film business, really. And also, some of them are quite sort of philanthropic. You know, they think that because they've got money and they've done quite well and they've made money doing whatever it is they've done, yeah, you know, that they're quite happy to sort of funnel some of it back into UK film. You know, because they know that it's hard for people in the UK to get films made at all. Okay. So, if they're able to kind of help with that process and have some fun along the way and maybe get some of their family members involved or something, then they're willing to do it for that reason really
1: so so in a way that it's when 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 looking at potential film investors quite often, what you're presenting is the big idea, not the spreadsheet with the facts and figures. Yeah okay.
0: Spreadsheet with the facts and figures would be insane to present because uh with film, you you know, you're, you're kind of lying. I mean, you see all these weird and wonderful kind of IMs, offer documents, prospectuses, whatever you want to call them, where people say, you know, yes, you know, we'll make loads of money doing this. You know, look what happened to Blair Witch. And, you know, they quote all the films that... Made millions. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> and we all know that that's like one in a hundred that does that, you know. That'd so, be like
1: starting a market stand, wouldn't it, and saying, Look at Mark Spencer's now.
0: Yeah, and investors are all, you know, they're not, they didn't make a lot of money by being stupid. They're pretty clever people, you know, and they, they do a bit of due diligence, they do a bit of research, and they soon find out what's going on. So I've always thought it's best to be brutally honest with them, you know, it's best to actually show them the stats show them how it works, show them what the likelihood of it is, and then if they're still willing to invest, at least you know that they're going to be a solid investor, you know, and, and you're probably going to have some fun together sort of thing. Whereas if you've sort of misled them in the first place, then they're not going to be very happy, really, with you if, uh, <clears throat> if you don't make tons of money, which, let's face it, is the likelihood, really. I mean, um, there hasn't been that many British films... In the last ten years, that have recouped, let alone made a profit, you know. So, so you, you 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 know you are you are in a kind of tiny minority if you manage to do well.
1: Do you, do you think that there's any there's any development coming in the future for for film revenues to start coming in for British movies in any way? Is that de- the way that the the landscape's changing for how we watch movies? Is it is it for the better or for worse? Do you think?
0: Well, it's always changing and it's always evolving. I mean, there are some quite good opportunities now, I think, in film because of the co-production market. So rather than a British film where it's all set in the UK and and you're raising all the money in the UK, which is obviously very risky, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of films that are like co-productions, if you're shooting it in Canada or Germany or New Zealand or somewhere where there's lots of soft money... And you can access tax credits and you can access some regional finance and, you know, then the private equity, i.e. the EIS money, is not so much at risk because they're coming in possibly for, say, 25, 30% of the budget. And if your pre-sales are good on that or if your sales estimates are really healthy with a really, you know, reputable sales agent, then, you know, that, that sort of business model can work really well on the right movie. You know, mainly genre movies with decent cast. I mean, we're mm-hmm. talking movies that probably five million and up, really. You okay. know, um, and they, you know, th- that does work. That, that that works often, very well.
1: And for, for again, for people sort of not in in the film world, as it were, when you say genre movies, you, you mean sort of outside of drama, don't you? So clearly defined as sort of comedy, yeah, a thriller, it's, it's, or horror, it's, it's, yeah, and so on. Exactly. Which, so people know exactly what they're selling and what, and clearly the audience would know what they're buying.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's mainly films with quite high marquee value cast that um, that you know there's already interest in from the industry. Um, I mean, investors like to know that. So if they know that you you're kind of um, you know that the film's going in nine months or whatever it is, you know you've got the proper cast attached, you've got really good sales estimates and you've actually got some distribution guarantees and you know that already there's quite a lot of interest in this project and it's going to get some serious heavyweight kind of um, clout behind it, then, you know, that's not such a punt for the investors really, you know, and they're more inclined to get involved.
1: So so it's, it, is, it is just, you know, good old fashioned kind of star power and, and sort of, you know, their, their brand, like whether that be
0: the, the people it you see do for sure, Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 everyone seems to be interested in actors at the moment. They're not even that interested in directors these days for some reason. It's okay. more, yeah, they don't seem to be. It really is all about the certain actors, sales agents consider to have sales clout and they're the ones that will get you money.
1: I suppose, yeah, so if they're at the cold face talking to the people buying films, they're going to, they, they know what excites them. But it kind of, it scares me when I think about that, because it sort of, it, 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 it brings its own inherent conservatism, doesn't it?
0: It does, yeah, yeah. And it means that a handful of actors who are all being touted around, they can't do every film. No. So no. you're going to get a lot of films that are not going to happen, because, I mean, it gives, it gives certain actors a lot more choice, which is a good or bad thing, I'm not sure. Hmm. But it also means that a lot of probably very good projects don't happen because the actors who could make that, that happen can't do everything, you know.
1: Now you mentioned you mentioned earlier about the sort of the, the ongoing you know, what was what was EIS before and, and, and how it evolves. Is as somebody that's involved with it, are you are you are you pumped information out from HRMC to keep you up to date or is keeping up to date a job in itself?
0: Yeah, you kind of just learn as you go along, really. Um, I mean, it, it does become a job in itself, yeah, and you have to kind of stay alert to it all. Um, and it's just something you sort of get used to, really, because once you've done it, yes. it's a real enabler, you know. So although it's really painful and it almost puts you in the asylum getting it together the first time, you, you realise that having done that, it puts you in such a kind of um, unique position in the filmmaking process that you never really want to, you know, go back to the cap in hand going around begging people phase. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I mean,
1: it must be like a massive journey from, you know, doing sort of cut-and-paste film backdrops and experimental shorts to using a completely different part of the brain as a filmmaker to pull together... and. EIS
0: scheme. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at history, the history of the film business, most filmmakers have always had to hustle, you know? Yeah. I mean, you're very rare as a filmmaker that people will just give you money to go and make your films. I mean, it very, very rarely happens. I mean, obviously there is a handful of people out there now, like David O. Russell and people like that who are in that unique position, but Mm. It's very, very, very rare, you know, I mean, even the great Orson Welles had to hustle, didn't he, you know, I mean, you know, he was always in the throes of a project falling apart and stuff like that because he couldn't get the money together, you know, I mean, that's just, that's the nature of the job really, I think now, it really is, It probably always has been.
1: Yes, I heard a funny story about Martin Scorsese having a a stack of scripts on his coffee table and the fella says, you know, you're a bit behind with your reading, he goes, that's not me behind with the reading, that's the projects I can't get made. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah you think know. yeah, no, it's Martin Scorsese can ask the hustle then you know we all are aren't we
0: yeah that's true you know sure. film projects are strange things in that it takes a sort of quite a lot of planets to align for it to happen and when it does it's amazing you know and it's really good and it seems to just take momentum and it's like a boulder rolling down the hill and then it's unstoppable but getting to that position is nigh on impossible
1: it's, I mean, I think that word "momentum" comes up a lot. It sort of it feels like it's almost like a, a film can be glacial, can't it? Yeah. And then, totally. and then suddenly, yeah. here we go. We're making a movie.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and nobody's yeah. going to stop us now. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's very strange. It's a strange thing.
1: So, what, what would what would you say from a filmmaker point of view in comparison to the to the many many sh- um, videos you've made? our lessons learned you've you've had from making movies in comparison because obviously feature movie obviously is, is a much bigger project than an ad or a, or a music video so what what would you say were uh, sort of say two or three lessons learned for you of that, of that in comparison you know to the, the shorter formats
0: well every time you make something you're learning I think to be honest with you because it's like you know films are like football matches or something and every, everyone's different um, you know No matter how much you think, oh, this is going to be like this one or something, it never is. Hmm. So they each come with their own sort of unique set of challenges and problems, really. So, you know, it's kind of, it's not really something you can sort of um, equate like that. You have to just, you you know, you're kind of inventing it from the ground up every time you do it, really, I think. I mean, obviously, you, as a director, you learn certain tricks and tropes and shortcuts and things that work for you yeah. in order to get where you want quicker or in order to get people to do stuff easier. Um, and that that's something you, you do pick up as you go along and get much better at. But each project is always, you know, um, a, it really is a kind of, you know, hefty, challenge and it kind of has its own life, really, that, that, that you can't, you find it difficult to control. I mean, projects, once they get going, even though you've probably initiated them, um, once they kind of become things and people are getting involved and people are actually putting money in and stuff like that, it becomes this kind of, you know, huge thing that's very difficult to control. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, you okay, try okay. to, you're constantly trying to tame the beast, you know.
1: Yeah, 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 don't go over there, don't go over there, please. Please yeah. stay with me, please stay with me. <laughs> yeah. So I, I notice on, on IMDb you're, you're, you're sort of credited to, there's four projects that are in development. Yes. Um, there's, there's, there's Naked Truth, Unspoken. Yeah. Guilty and ESP. Do you want is any of those you can talk? I mean, are any of those picking up momentum as you would as you would call it? Or yeah,
0: ESP's called Contained now. That's had a title change. Okay, uh, that's a conspiracy thriller. Um, that was almost that was a really good example. In, in that we had Olga Kurenko attached to that. We had uh, Senator Film, a big distributor in Germany, interested in co-producing it, and that was starting to get some traction earlier on this year and started to look like that was going to happen and then Olga got pregnant and had to pull out um and Senator got taken over by wild bunch so that deal went a bit curly so uh that was a really good example of something where it looked like it was going to fly out of the traps yeah. and now we're having to kind of reevaluate and uh, put it back together again but um but it's quite good, because what's happened in that interim period is that we had all these. this really good, really good sort of feedback on the script from actors and from distributors and from financiers and stuff like that. So it's kind of given us that unique opportunity, which we wouldn't have had had we had to just go ahead and make it. Mm. We'd have been scrambling to sort of get all that together, and we wouldn't have been able to do any major changes to the script. But because we've... Had this sort of slight hiatus, and we're now going to go again um, very shortly with it, with a different cast and different financiers, etc. But it's enabled us to uh, to you know really kind of hone that script, I think, and and, and and in a way, I think it's miles better than it would have been. So you know, with each setback comes another opportunity. That's another weird thing about the film business, really. You know. Um, yeah, I can I
1: can I can imagine. Yeah, because you. you, you... You, you, it'd, be, it'd almost be silly wouldn't it just to move forward with exactly what you had before it's almost like what can we do to make this better so that
0: yeah you're constantly getting feedback from yeah. from, from people you know because everyone has script readers and script people and development people that, um, that, that, in, that that they employ to kind of tell them what sort of film this is and what chances it has of being successful etc cetera, etc cetera. and if you're lucky they feed all that back to you and that's really useful, you know. That's great kind of information because it's kind of, you know, great in t- intel, so to speak, on where your project's at and what they really think of it. And that and it, now that we had a little bit of time with this because we've we've kind of reset it, yeah. it, It's been great for us because we've been able to sort of write a completely new draft, which, um, well, which I think is 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 even, you know, way. Better than I mean, it was good before, but I think it's really good now. And The Naked Truth is, is our first comedy. We've never done a comedy yet, so... Okay. And that's been in development for years, So, and again, we had investors who paid for the development of that, so that's just coming to fruition now. We just had a kind of performed reading of that with actors very recently, and, and it seemed to work great. So we're just putting the sort of final stages to the packaging of that, and we'll start to go out and... Um, Start financing that very soon.
1: Is that for so you to I, is that for you to direct, or are you just producing that one?
0: No, I'm going to direct that one. Okay. Yeah.
1: And how? And how? Uh, I mean, I did I did a recent reading myself with just just with like five scenes, but how did you how did you find that the, the read through informed the film idea?
0: Um, well, I'm I'm a big fan of read throughs. I do it as often as I can, really. Okay. Um, so it's it's something that I. Think really shows you where you're at. I mean, you don't want to do them too early because that can, you know, that can pivot the spirit. You can kill it,
1: couldn't you? you can <laughs> kill the idea. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. To go yeah. off and cry in a corner for a week. But, you know, <laughs> once you've got a project to a certain stage and the script sort of starting to sing, I always think it's, it really shows you where you're at if you, if you can get the best cast possible in a room and a small. Kind of invited audience and, and and do a proper performed reading of it, and then it, I think that really kind of shows you where you're at and what's working and what isn't, and it's great for the writers. Um, and um, you know, so we we try to do that as often as possible. We're, we're big fans of read throughs.
1: How do you how do you find the the? I guess maybe sound like a daft question. Hopefully not. Um, your producer's head and your director's head. You know, in terms of developing a movie.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, normally, the way I tend to work is that um, I kind of usually initiate something. Hmm. So usually, the, the, the you know, I find the material or decided this is something I want to make, because I, you know, find something really compelling that I kind of fall in love with or whatever it is. And yeah. um, so I'll work on it for a while. Um, You know, sometimes with David, sometimes myself, sometimes with other people, whatever. And then when I've got to a certain stage, I I always try and bring uh, another producer on board. So to to sort of share the load, if you know what I mean. So even though I'll stay on as a producer, and and, and obviously I've initiated it, so I've been the kind of main producer to begin with, because I'm, especially if it's something I'm going to go and direct... I'll bring on a producer who then becomes the lead producer on the project, really, and takes over all of that. So then we work together, but I can then concentrate more on the directing part of it because you can't do everything. It's really difficult.
1: So it's like it's a bit like a space rocket, isn't it? So when you get to a certain point, you you kind of jettison some yes. of that responsibility for producing because you're going to have to direct, which is in
0: yes, itself. It really is like that. Yeah, you, you you do have to put like a completely different hat on. Yeah. yeah.
1: OK, OK. Well, it's been really really interesting talking around these different... Obviously, the background and talking about these different ways and, and your experience of developing movies. And our last question I'd like to ask everyone is to recommend us a British movie that has either been long forgotten or uh, a more recent one that maybe people could have missed and they should revisit. Anything spring to, to mind?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, a few, really. Um, I suppose my favourite... British films, um, are all probably um, a little bit older. Go on. Um, I mean, there's one that was reissued recently, The Long Good Friday. That's a really good film. I've always been a big fan of that, and uh, I think the BFI just restored that recently and was showing it. Yeah. Um, um, but my probably my favourite British film is Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now. Nah. Um, okay. I really love that film. That's a great film. I don't know if they've restored that recently. They might have done Um, and that's, um, that's an amazing movie. I mean, it's actually from a Daphne du Maurier short story, but the short story is, um, nothing like the film. I mean, Nick Rogue really took that story and ran with it and completely made it his own, you know. Um, and that's been a very influential film, I think, on quite a lot of British directors, not only us, um, or me, um, I know Danny Ball's a big fan of it too. Um, what,
1: what is it? What is it? You think? What's the kind of the secret germ that's in there that makes it so? You know, the the, the, the kernel of the film that has this appeal with other because it. I get the feeling it is like a filmmaker's film as much as you know the the, the horror audience. Yeah, one that is
0: such a sort of visual stylist. So he kind yeah. of a, he kind of more or less, um, you know, invented that whole sort of jump forward, jump back kind of way of editing that he uses in a lot of his films. But in some of his other movies, he really kind of overdoes that. And maybe, you know, although they're interesting to filmmakers and other people, it it doesn't make the whole thing work. In Don't Look Now, he does it very subtly. So in Don't Look Now, he kind of uses all his tricks, but in a really subtle way so that it makes what is, after all, a kind of genre movie, really, Mm -hmm. um, into something a lot more interesting. So it's got kind of great layers in it and it's also it's um you know it's, it's it's ostensibly about a guy who kind of sees his own death and doesn't realize it so visually speaking it's just so well told visually because everything's there you know none of the exposition really happens in the dialogue at all everything's in the in the visuals you know in the spilling of ink or the um you know, shard of a stained glass window. I mean, it, it, it's it's such a brilliantly visually told movie. You know,
1: but in in in, in it sort of with hindsight as well, it's kind of it it feels like our, our our European cousins have been allowed to keep running with that, and I think the influence we have from Hollywood yeah that means that maybe we're not allowed that level of kind of subtlety.
0: Definitely. I think you spot on. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Yeah, I would say Don't Look Now would probably be a major influence on a lot of European directors. And you can see that in a lot of European films that have happened since, since that kind of era. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the 70s in the US was probably a great time for like existentialist filmmakers. There's some really interesting stuff coming out of the States in the 70s. Yet since then, um, not so much, really. Um, so, yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's because of the kind of whole MTV 80s thing, you know, like if you read, uh, is it Peter Goralnake, the books? Um,
1: the Easy Rider Raging Bull. Yeah, like,
0: it's, you know, the industry's affected by what drugs people are taking. And oh, that, that, whole,
1: that whole idea that... that the MTV the
0: Simpson-Bruckheimer thing. think <laughs>
1: No, just I mean, what frightened me. I remember reading that book, and I got to that bit where he basically says that moment where the Domino's pizza box fills the frame. And <laughs> the ET signaled a complete change in how we would do product placement. And you're like, yeah, Jesus Christ! You know, at the time it seemed innocent. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, it's a, a fascinating thing. But, but yeah, Don't Know was funny enough. Was voted by Britflix readers the second best British horror film. The really? first The first was Wicker Man. Which, man, yeah. which is ironic, given that the Wicker Man was the B-movie to Don't Look Now, when it was originally released in the cinema. Was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, yeah, the, they, there was like a weird 70-minute version
0: of right, Wicker Man yeah. that went
1: out as a double bill right. with, with Don't Look Now. And though they, though they showed the full version, Fright Fest, I think it was 2011, um, for the people that did the... I don't know if you're familiar with the Sleepy queue but people who go and queue for... Hours before um, <clears throat> the do- or even days, so don't look
0: now. Consider the horror film.
1: I would say so. Really? Yeah. Oh, uh. you have to, You know, you have you have horror. I mean, it's kind of like it's not horror in a kind of hard sense that people are getting chopped up and killed. Because I think I think there's that. I think we as a there's, there's a genre audience that want buckets of blood. and always have okay. done, but I think that there's a. There's a, yeah, psychological it's a very psychological, psychological, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I think, I think, where does a psychological, psychological thriller, end, thriller, I would say. But where does psychological end, and where does thriller begin? You know, it's kind of well, like, you, uh, know yeah, I mean? you know, what I mean. If, if I look at something like Seven, and then I look at something like Saw, that, you know,
0: all great they're, films, both they're, great they're, films. They're, Saw one yeah, a great yeah, film.
1: Yeah, the film. I mean, look, like you know, franchises do what they do, and they're great for money, and. So, franchise is
0: an amazing film, well, Yeah, that's...
1: And, but 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 so- seven is not a horror film because of who's in it, I think. <laughs> and and um, it's like
0: I mean, a modern noir, isn't it? Seven, it's like a it's well, like it a is. film noir, completely updated and contemporized.
1: But the, you know, but, but I think that I think if if there's the horror in it, i.e., you're meant to be horrified and things happen to people that disturb them, so you get a visceral reaction to to the the, the, the you know the, the evil that's in people's minds I think that's yeah. that's yeah. horror whereas I, you know like you say the, the the don't look now and the grief and the seeing your own death I yeah
0: think they're, they're yeah.
1: horrible things they're not
0: yeah well I mean the, to me they're all psychological thrillers really I would say Saw one was too mm. but the second definitely is. I mean, but then you're right. What does that mean? You know, I mean. Well, I exactly. Just, I mean, it's like a script.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it's. I mean, for sa- for sales agents, they need these boundaries. But for what for people that watch it, you just yeah. want to watch a good film, don't you? In other words, exactly. Like, yeah. Like you said these are these are all good films. Well, look, yeah. Neil. I thank you very much for your time. Thank I'm you very ready. much, sir. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix. Just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.